I have a question for the kids and the youth who are here this morning, especially for the junior high and high school gang. And it's a question I want to challenge you to think about even after you leave here today. When the subject of parents comes up in your conversations with your friends, how often do those conversations show honor to your parents and to the parents of your friends rather than dishonor? When the trash talk about the parentals starts flying, have you ever thought about what kind of a bombshell it would be if you said something like, well, yeah, my parents make me crazy sometimes too, but I thank God that He gave me parents who care about Him and who love me enough to teach me what He has to say about things. That would take some courage because it would probably invoke a little ridicule. It raised some eyebrows. But it's very much in line with the attitude and the actions that God commands of children. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see an assignment that's very clear. Verses 1 through 4, and I put 4 here to show you what the parent side of it is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the first thing, for this is right. And second, honor your father and mother. And it's a commandment that comes with a promise that comes all the way back from the Ten Commandments. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So your part is obey and honor. Your parents' part is to raise you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, that's not what's supposed to provoke you. (laughs) All right. Verse 4 is the parents' part. uh, That, by the way, verse 4 is the stuff that parents are called to pass on to their kids and that kids are called to receive and obey. The word for children in this passage, techna, does not refer only to very small kids. It refers to kids from a variety of different ages. And I believe the phrase, in the Lord, in verse 1, where it says, obey your parents in the Lord, matches up and is parallel to the phrase, as to the Lord, in Ephesians, in the previous chapter, Ephesians 5, 22, where God says to wives, submit to your parents as, uh, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now he's saying to the children, obey your parents in the Lord. I believe the idea there is that when you obey your parents, you're, you're obeying God. And the phrase for this is right in one means because this is righteous. This is what is in keeping with the character of God and what it demands of you. Paul's choice of words in this passage makes it clear that this is a sacred and a very important assignment that children are to keep. Not fundamentally because their parents require it of them, but because God requires it of them. Now, Paul just made the point at the end of the previous chapter, Ephesians 5, that when a man gets married, he leaves his father and his mother and he cleaves to his wife in keeping with God's design for marriage that was revealed all the way back in Genesis 2. When a man marries, he becomes head of another household, his own household, in submission to God. And that same passage makes it clear that from that point forward, the wife 
gives her submission to her husband, not to her parents. There's a leaving that is necessary before the cleaving can really happen. So the command to obey your parents applies while you're under their headship until you have your own household. But the command to embrace and obey what your parents pass on to you from the Lord doesn't stop when you get married. Let me say that again. The command to embrace and obey what your parents have passed on to you from God persists as long as you live. And the command to honor your parents has no end point at all. It applies after you marry and even after your parents have passed away. I think we're all reasonably clear on what the word obey means, but do you know what the word honor means? When the Bible talks about honoring a person, it means assigning great value to that person. And it's not just the value that you assign personally. It's the value that you spread. Because in the Bible, honoring another person means causing others to recognize the great value that you see in that person. Think for a minute about how crazy it would sound to some of your friends if you actually did that with regard to your parents. If you actually talked in those terms of the great value that you assign to your parents and that you want them to see. And then think about what kind of an opportunity that little conversational shakeup might be in the hands of God to challenge your friend's own thinking about their parents. This morning, we're going to dig deeper into the assignment to obey and honor parents, our parents, especially as it's presented in the book of Proverbs. And as we do, we should all be very clear about the fact that these important truths ultimately apply to every one of us. Even if your kids are already grown and out of the house, even if you've never married and had kids, even adults with no children at all. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a redeemed child of God, and you have a perfect Father to whom all of this applies. What God commands of your children in their relationship with you, parents, He commands of you in your relationship with Him. All right, let's talk about the assignment and kind of look at some verses that dive into it a little bit more. First, uh, fundamentally, the assignment is to obey and honor your parents. But look, let's look at how that plays out. Proverbs 2, 1 through 4 makes it clear we are to humbly receive and act upon our parents' instruction and discipline. We read it just a moment ago. My son, if you receive my sayings, treasure my commandments, and it gives this long list of things that we are to do. And then it, it tells what the outcome is. And I just want to point out the verbs in that passage. To say that Solomon is telling his son to be receptive to wise instruction is an understatement. He's imploring his son to go after that wise instruction that his father is giving to him as he would search for precious hidden treasure. He's telling him to make his ear attentive to that wisdom, to incline his heart to it, to lift up his voice and cry out for it. Children, does that sound like a good description of the approach that you take toward your parents' instruction? Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. You can see that discipline and rebuke, the verbal correction part, go hand in hand uh, with physical discipline and other kinds of discipline. 
Proverbs 15.5, A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is prudent. Rebuke is correcting wrong thinking, and reproof is correcting wrong behavior. Uh, those are simplifications, but those are, that's kind of the difference between those. Now, what does God's Word say about the child who kicks against that correction, instruction, and discipline? It says he's a fool, and it doesn't mince words. All right, another element to this that sometimes kids seem to struggle with, and I did when I was young, is your parents are supposed to talk a lot about what God says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, one of the most revered passages by Jews in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema, which means to hear. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And here's what parents are supposed to do. You shall teach them diligently. Teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Sounds a little like nagging, doesn't it? God commands your parents to speak often and in every context of life about the things that they have received from God. To pass those things on to you. So, you know what? When your parents do that, they're doing what God told them to do. And He requires you to pay very close attention and to humbly receive and act upon that instruction and discipline that comes to you from God through your parents. The call to honor and obey your parents is a subset of God's call to you to honor and obey Him. Now, it's very clear to me that every child has to reach the point in his life where he or she either personally takes ownership of what his parents have taught him or else rejects it and replaces it with something else. A parent cannot force his child to believe what he believes. And if he tries to force his child to believe what God says, he's likely to drive him away from it rather than to draw him toward it. It's critically important for us as parents, and we all struggle with this, Lord knows I do. It's critically important for us to recognize that God is the changer of hearts. He's the one who's sovereign over the heart of our child, not us. But if you're the child in that equation, here's a reality you cannot change or get around. If your parents are pointing you to the truth that God has revealed in His Word, then whether you accept it or reject it, you're still accountable to it. If a child doesn't like or agree with what his parents are telling him, then he's certainly not going to like it when his parents say, I'm not telling you this on my authority, I'm telling it to you on God's authority, because it's in His Word. And as believing parents, I think we have to be careful not to beat our kids to death with that declaration. (laughs) I've been guilty of that. But if you're the child who's on the receiving end when your parents are telling you that their instruction comes to you from God's Word, you might want to give a lot of thought to it before you let yourself resent them pointing out the source of their instruction. Look at 
Proverbs chapter 4, what Solomon says about the origin, the source of his instruction to his son. Sons. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, for I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. Okay, so far, he doesn't point to anyone other than himself. But he's speaking with very great confidence. And he's saying, I've directed you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in upright paths. Does he say, my son, these are strong suggestions. You can take them or leave them. No. Does he say, I might have this wrong or I might have it right, so you, you'll have to be the judge. No. He says, I've directed you in the way of wisdom and I've led you in upright paths. Now Solomon did, did some really foolish things in his life. But the instruction that's preserved for us that he, that he gave to his kids, you know where it came from? It came from God. Not from him. So he didn't beat around the bush when it came to expecting his sons to pay attention to it and to act on it. You know how I know it that Solomon knew it came from God? Look at this the rest of this passage. We looked at part of this already. Look at what he says about his sayings, and then look at what he says about God. My son, if you will receive my sayings, your dad, and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, search for her as for hidden treasures. Then you will discern what? The fear of the Lord. And discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's why Solomon had great confidence in what he was telling his kids. But it was because of where it came from. From whom it came. Is there any question there about whom Solomon acknowledges to be the source of his instruction? I don't think so. Now, why do you need your parents' instruction and discipline? Why do you have to bother with listening to and obeying your parents? Can't you just figure things out by yourself? An unprecedented number of young people today raised in Christian homes are of the very strong opinion that it is foolish for them to accept what their parents have taught them about God's Word, even when they see with their own eyes that the words their parents are telling them are the same words that they find in the Bible. There's a very powerful notion that's gained popularity that the one and only trustworthy way to know what's true is to ask yourself. To set aside every outside influence, including the teaching you've received from godly Christian parents, and from other believers, along with everything that you've learned from your own examination of the Bible, and to start with a blank slate and figure out truth from in here. That belief that the only trustworthy source of truth is self is one of Satan's most cherished lies. It's a very, very powerful lie because it impacts your whole grid for looking at life. And it comes from denying one very simple piece of information that God's Word tells us, and that is we all start out 
as fools. Proverbs 22.6 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. So we all start out as fools. We don't have wisdom. We have to get wisdom. And the only way we will ever acquire wisdom is to humbly listen to those who already have it. First and foremost, to God himself through his word. But secondarily, to those who know and are careful to proclaim and to point us to that which God's word says. And you know where the acquisition of godly wisdom always starts for the children of believing parents? It starts with their parents, by God's design, even before they can read the Bible for themselves. As children who are blessed to grow up in God-fearing families as part of a God-fearing community of believers, the primary God-appointed means for you to learn the fundamental, fundamentals about what God declares to be, through, uh, to be true excuse me, is through your parents. If you are the child, the parents who believe in Jesus Christ, however imperfect they are, who earnestly seek to know and understand and act on God's Word, and who love you enough to want to pass that truth down to you, then you are blessed beyond measure. God has handed you a treasure that makes every other treasure on this earth look like the toy surprise in a box of Cracker Jacks. How smart is it for you to throw that treasure aside because you think you can come up with something better yourself? Let me share something with you that is the difference between life and death. God will not let you discover what's true until you approach the discovery of truth on His terms. If you're committed to figuring out the difference between truth and falsehood on your own, God will see to it that you fail in that pursuit until you're willing to humble yourself and come to him and say, Lord, I'm a fool like everybody else, and I cannot know the truth until you show it to me. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to learn from you, and I'm ready to act on what you tell me. And of course, for each person, that begins with being humbled by God to the point where you truly hear what He has to say about your sin, His holiness, and His one and only provision for the fact that you owe Him an infinite debt because of your sin that you can't ever begin to pay. He paid the debt that you owe to Him by the blood of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And the day that you humble yourself, that's God's work, but the day that you humble yourself before Him and you say, God, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I'm dead, I'm unable to make myself acceptable to You, my only way to be right in Your eyes is to believe in Your payment, not mine to believe in your righteousness, not mine. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. He died in your place. That same humble response by which we come to have life has to characterize your whole relationship with God from that day forward as His redeemed child. 
King David beautifully presents this approach that we must all have as we come before God. He says in Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, Make me know, Lord, make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. I love that last part, for you I wait all the day. In other words, I'm not going to look anywhere else. I'm going to sit here until you show me what's true with my eyes on you, with my eyes on what you have said until I get it. Now, some of you may be thinking, uh, okay, I have no problem with all that. I'm perfectly willing for God to tell me what's true. I'm just not willing for my parents to tell me what's true. Why should I think that they're any better at figuring it out than I am? Isn't it likely that they have at least some things wrong about their understanding of what they see in the Bible? Why should I trust their understanding over my own? Now, that at, at face value, that argument sounds really, really good. But it's a dodge, and it does not impress God, and here's why. Declaring clear instruction to be unclear doesn't give you a pass to ignore it. Let me explain what I mean. If we were th- talking here about some theological fine point that lots of godly people disagree on, you might have a leg to stand on. But I cannot remember ever hearing a believing parent express great concern over his child because the child disagreed with him about unconditional election or superlapsarianism or the timing of the rapture. And if you don't know what those things even mean, don't sweat it. The point is, those are not the things that we're talking about here. Those are not the kinds of things that parents agonize over imparting to their children and grieve when their children don't receive them. Children, the things that your parents are trying with all their might to pass on to you are not unclear at all. And in your heart, you know they aren't. They're the things that God has made crystal clear, emphatically clear, repeatedly clear in His Word from cover to cover. So when your parents say, this is what God has to say on this subject... They can say it with great confidence. Think about it for a minute. Along with the clearest and most fundamental truths about God's holiness, man's sin, and God's provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ, things that a six-year-old can understand and many have, most of the truths that your parents labor daily to pass down to you are the same clear and simple truths that Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs were diligently trying to impart to their kids. Here's a few examples. The difference between wisdom and foolishness and the life and death outcome of each. The importance of moral and sexual purity and the powerful consequences of either rejecting that purity or embracing it. The destructive effects of pride and anger and the blessings of humility and self-control. The value of hard and diligent work versus laziness and self-indulgence the radical difference between what the world calls wealth and what God calls wealth. Some of these we haven't gotten to yet in our study, but we will. The responsibility of the believer to care for the poor and the downtrodden. What makes an excellent husband? What makes an excellent wife? And then what we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the assignment God gives to parents to impart impart an understanding of those things their kids.
And that's not a comprehensive list. There are other great things in Proverbs and throughout the Bible that are pure and simple as dirt and profoundly, profoundly important. These are life and death issues at the spiritual level and sometimes even at the physical level. But they're not unclear. And because they're not, God is not impressed when you set them aside because you declare them to be unclear. When God appointed your parents to serve as His agents, His representatives, in imparting godly instruction and wisdom to you, He didn't require that they be theologians or seminary graduates to pull it off. If your parents love the Lord and know even the most fundamental things presented in His Word, and if they are diligently trying to pass those things down to you, then here's something that is 100% guaranteed certain. Until you humble yourself to buy into what they're telling you, you will remain in darkness and you will never know what's true because what they're telling you is what God is telling you. You don't get to pick some other set of beliefs so you can be original. There's nothing new under the sun. God has revealed himself in his revelation and he has graciously given us everything that we need to know pertaining to life and godliness, Second Peter chapter 1. And he has revealed those things in crystal clear and undeniable terms in a manner that mortal men not only can know, but must know and embrace in order to have life, and once they have that life, in order to stay on the path of life. Surely, as you get older, you will find it necessary to test everything that men say directly against the standard of God's Word. And that means you need to study His Word. You need to know it really well. But no matter how old you are or how much you know, there's only one way you will ever recognize the truth when you hear it. And that's when you have the humility to receive it and act on it. In John 7, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. And then listen to this. He said, if any man is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. That's the Son of God talking. And he says, here's how you'll know when what you're hearing is actually coming from God, when you're willing to submit to it, to do it. What keeps so many young people from receiving as true the godly instruction that they're hearing from their parents is not a lack of clarity. It is a lack of humility. When young people from Christian families who've grown up being taught the very clear principles of wisdom and godliness found from cover to cover in the Bible declare that the Bible is not really as clear as their parents make it out to be and use that as an excuse to justify premarital sex or foul language, or indulgence in drugs, or pornography, or theft in the form of movie and music piracy, or any other sin, God is not impressed with the argument that they don't have clear enough information to know what's true. It's a lie. What they don't have is the humility to accept what's true. Now what's at stake? The assignment to you as a child of your parents and to all of us who are children of God is to listen carefully to the truth that God reveals to us, to receive it humbly and to act on it voluntarily. But what if you don't? We all know kids who don't. And you know what? There's a time in every one of our lives when we don't. 
What happens if you persist in that rejection of the truth? Well, it makes the difference first between wisdom and foolishness. Proverbs 4, verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father and give attention that you may gain understanding. That's wisdom. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. That's the father speaking to the son. Wisdom versus foolishness. Blessing versus curse. Proverbs 8, verses 32 to 36. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me. Watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. Now this is wisdom speaking, wisdom personified. For he who finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me, injures himself. All those who hate me, Love death. Blessing versus curse. Another couple of verses. Proverbs twenty twenty. He who curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. I don't even want to know what that's like. Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Doesn't sound very good to me. This is the difference between wisdom and foolishness. It's the difference between blessing and curse. And it's the difference between shame and grief to your parents versus honor and gladness. It's interesting how many verses talk about that in Proverbs. 27.11, Proverbs. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 10.10, the Proverbs of Solomon A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is grief to his mother. 1520, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. 1725, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Two more, 1721, he who begets a fool does so to his own sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. In 23, 15, and 16, My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart will also be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is wise. And some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, that's not fair. What I do with my life is my problem. Why should my parents honor And their happiness have anything to do with my choices. Like it or not, (laughs) other people are always affected by your choices, even the ones you make in private. And your parents are affected far more than most people. The unrepentant rebellion of a child has cost some parents far more than just their reputations. Some parents have lost their jobs, their ministries, and their last dime as a direct outcome of a child's steadfast refusal to submit to the truth. And all the while, the child insisted that it's his life and nobody else should have a say in it. And I've heard some believers seriously dishonor their parents even after the parent's death. 
Go look sometime at David's eulogy to Saul. Saul chased him around for a decade or so, trying to kill him. And the whole time, in every encounter, David called Saul God's anointed. And then at the end of his life, when Saul and Jonathan died, died in battle, David said not one negative word about Saul. His eulogy exalted Saul as a valiant warrior and a protector of his people. If David could say that about crazy King Saul, surely you can say things that are honorable about your parents who have poured their lives into you. All right, what else is at stake? Light versus darkness. Proverbs 6, verses 20 and 20, 20 to 23. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are a way of life. That's a lot more than just a light, right? It's more like a combination bodyguard GPS super flashlight. And it's life. Wisdom versus foolishness. Blessing versus curse. Shame and grief to your parents versus honor and gladness. Light versus darkness. And life versus death. We just saw that in the last verse. Here's another one. Proverbs 4 verses 10 to 13. Hear my son and accept my sayings and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Proverbs 4, verses 20 to 22. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them in health to all their whole body. And one more, Proverbs 8, 32 to 36. I'm just going to do the last couple of verses. He who finds me, this is wisdom speaking, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. It's life and death. That's what's at stake, and there's more, I'm sure. Those are the things I saw. There's a certain kind of insanity that we all struggle against uh, when we're kids, oops, I'll find where I was in a minute. That insanity tells us that even if what our parents is, is telling us is right, uh, what they're telling us are right, uh, we can get away with ignoring it for a while. It tells us uh, our parents are somehow sort of grossly exaggerating the whole consequences of sin thing. That we should be able to enjoy the things of this world for a while and get away with it. It's not like we're so stupid that we don't know where to put the boundaries, right? We'll be fine. <laughs> so a young man decides that he'll try a particular drug, fully convinced that he'll be able to control the impact it has on him and that he'll be able to set that, that pleasure aside whenever he chooses. Guys, how many drug addicts whose lives and relationships have been turned into absolute disasters believed at the beginning that they would ever get to that point? None. What about the young man who gets accustomed to indulging himself sexually when he's young and single and then he gets married? He made a vow to be faithful to his wife and he'd like at some level to honor that vow. 
but he finds it exceedingly hard to be faithful to just one woman when he's got so used to playing the field. There's an old saying that goes like this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Remember the image of the cattle chute? That's how sin works. It draws you in and you can't get out. You know what the Bible calls that kind of insanity that we have when we're young that makes us think we're invulnerable to the impact of sin, that we can control it, we can get our hands around it? The Bible calls it foolishness. You know, you know what the cure to foolishness is? Wisdom. And you know how you get from wisdom to foolishness? Humility. You humble yourself to respond to wise instruction and discipline by submitting to it instead of kicking against it. As long as you profess to be wise, you remain a fool. As long as you think you can set aside godly instruction or at least pick and choose which of it to receive, you will remain in your foolishness and you'll be on a path of misery and death rather than blessing and life. And that applies to Christians as well. There are only two paths every day of your life. But the day you humble yourself to admit that you cannot get to wisdom on your own terms, that will be the day that you get on the path of life. I need to back up one more step in that progression. What if you don't have that humility? What if you suspect all this might be true and right, but you find yourself somehow unable to just let go of your own way of thinking and reasoning so you can trust in and submit to God's way of thinking and reasoning. How does that get fixed? God's answer to that question is actually very straightforward. It's not confusing. It's not hard to grasp at all. His answer is that you must repent. You must turn from self-dependence to God-dependence, from believing your own lies to believing God's truth, the only truth that exists. At the very heart of it, you must turn from unbelief to belief. And whatever's in the way of that, that's what you have to turn from. So you can turn your attention to God and hear from Him and receive what He says and obey it. Trust it and obey it. You flee from self to God, receive His gift of forgiveness and life that comes only through the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. And even that starting point, just like everything else that can ever be said about us that's good is God's work and not yours. <laughs> there was some discussion about that at the worship. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you're still trying to sort out life on your own terms and by your own reasoning, be assured of this. You will never have any resolution or clarity or peace until you humble yourself to get the truth from God and then order your life according to that truth. It's that simple. It always works that way. It will never work any other way. Just about to finish here, but I want to show you a couple of other things. Old school still applies. <laughs> when it comes to wisdom and godliness, old school is always current. Times change. God doesn't. Here's a great verse. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight. I love this verse. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Real Christianity is still your father's faith. In fact, 
the only faith that God acknowledges as legit in the Bible is the faith of Abraham, and he hadn't been around here for a long, long time. Since godliness is all about God conforming us to himself, and since God doesn't change, godliness doesn't change either. It looks and acts the same in every age and in every context and in every culture. Now, some of you may be thinking uh, that I've been too heavy-handed, that all this sounds like a big guilt trip that nobody does very well. Permit me to end by balancing what God requires with how graciously God forbears. Will you fulfill God's assignment to you as a child perfectly? No. Will you always obey and honor your parents as God has commanded? No. (laughs) Will you always obey and honor God as He has commanded? No. God already knows all that. Psalm 103 verse 14 says, He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Nobody knows you like God knows you. But you know what the verses are that lead up to that statement? They're just beautiful. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed, separated our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. We have a marvelously forbearing and gracious God. (laughs) And we to whom... He has handed the sacred stewardship of parenting children must extend that same grace and forbearance to our kids. But children, that part of God's character applies to you too. Your parents struggle with the same sinful tendencies that God has appointed them to try to correct in you. Understand that they will try with all their might to pass on to you what God has declared to be true. And when they do so, they're doing what what God told them to do. When the sin in their lives is blatantly obvious, (laughs) don't apply a standard of perfection to them that you would never want applied to you. For most of you in this room, until and unless you get married, you have no greater allies, no greater advocates, no one who more earnestly seeks your well-being on this earth than your parents. Honor them, obey them, forgive them, love them, and maybe occasionally thank them. Parenting's not a popularity contest. Uh, the parent who sets it as his goal to be his kid's most liked buddy <laughs> is going to do a pretty crummy job of parenting. But it is not wrong for a parent to desire the love and respect of his children. God desires it of us. Loving Father, thank you for for being straight with us.
uh, these passages that we've looked at don't beat around the bush at all. Uh, These are indeed the difference between life and death. We pray that you would teach us, that you would instill in us the humility that produces a godly response to our parents and above all, Lord, to you. We desire to honor and please the one who saved us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.